So uh, we've been in Matthew chapter 14 for the last two weeks. We're not in Matthew today, but here's the thing. We've looked at two incredible miracles that Jesus performed. Remember, he took the little boy's lunch and he multiplied it to feed maybe 20,000 people. And then we saw the Lord get up and walk on the water on the Sea of Galilee, calm the storm. And we saw that the disciples were right there with him, but they were slow in connecting the dots. They saw the wonderful things he did. They thought Jesus was a wonderful man, but they didn't connect that he was their Messiah. He was their Lord. And we asked ourselves a couple of times, what would we have done if we had been in their sandals? You know, we had walked with them. Would we, would we have connected the dots if we got to see Jesus do those things right in front of our eyes? Would we have connected that dot? Guess what? Today we get to you think, no, I'm with you. <laughs> Today we get to find out whether we're good dot connectors or not. Because now that we've seen who Jesus is, we're going to look at a promise that is made to us from the, from the Lord. And we, we are going to leave here today knowing whether we can connect that dot or not. Can we hear him and believe him enough to trust him? That's what we're going to do in, in, uh, in our study today. But first, please join me in asking the Lord to teach us his word. Father, we never want to come uh, and, and, and hear the words of, of a man. Father, we, we come to hear your voice. And now as we open our Bibles, Father, we know that's the easy part, just to open the book and look at the words. What we need from you, Father, is to teach us. We need your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to see you as we've never seen you before and to hear your promise so that we can own it and live it. Thank you, Father, for what you're going to do in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're in Hebrews 13 in the New Testament. It's sort of unusual to begin a message by telling you how we're going to close in prayer. But I want to do that because my hope is when we finish studying this two verses, it will so touch your heart, it will so convict your spirit that you'll want to read these words back to God as our prayer to him at the end. So that's how we're going to close in prayer. Let's start by reading this passage in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Confidence. Tricky. Confidence can only be as good as the person or thing we put our confidence in, right? Have you ever put your faith in someone or something that let you down? Doesn't that hurt? Because you thought you were okay. And you realize later the confidence you had was useless because the thing or the person let you down. Years ago, uh, the company I worked for was we were filming a car commercial, and there was a kayaking scene. So we had a, it was my job to go find find the right river. So we went up to Washington State along the Ohanabakash River, which was a class four, five, six, whatever the most difficult thing for kayakers to do. It was that kind of river. So we were scouting it to see where we would put our cameras and things. And um, 
I was with the kayakers, I was with our location scout and producers and others, and we were going along the river, and we came to a place where there was a trail. It was about this wide. And it, and it ran right across the top of the river. The river was like 15, 20 feet below us. But you go across this trail, it was about this wide, and there were even ropes there that the, the kayakers had, had left. They'd been using this trail for years. This is where they went back and forth, perfectly safe. Kayakers went across, the, the location scout, the producer, then I went across. And for whatever reason, on this particular day, I had put my confidence in that trail, but it let me down. I stepped. I was going across with the ropes, and I stepped. And where would I step? Suddenly that rock, that ground gave way. And I fell straight down. And I was, I remember looking straight down going like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go into the river. It's amazing what you can think about when you're falling. <laughs> and there were big boulders, and I thought, oh, I, oh, my, I'm, oh no, I'm going to miss the boulders. I'm going to get wet. And I got really wet. This was winter time. It was a, a, a class river that it, it was moving fast, and I went all the way under. I remember hitting the bottom and looking up. And there was three or four feet of water over my head. Wow, the water is clear in Washington. That was really clear water. And, and I remember looking up, and I immediately saw the arm of Jay Carroll, our location scout, through the water, and, and I, he grabbed me and he pulled me out. But I thought of that. I mean, that... I totally put my confidence in something that everybody else seemed to do fine with, but it let me down, literally. A kind of a quick story, this has nothing to do with the message, but the, the kayakers we were with were really nice because they always keep spare clothes with them. So they said, hey, don't worry, Dave, we'll, we have some spare clothes we'll give you so you don't have to be wet. That was nice. problem is, I'm an extra large. These guys are mediums. And they gave me a pair of sweatpants that kind of came up to here. I put those on, and then I, this T-shirt was so tight. I don't know if you guys remember the Adams family with Pugsley. He had this belly and this really tight shirt, and that's what I looked like. And it was right before lunch, so we went to this local lunch spot where all the motorcycles pull up and stuff, and I, I come walking in. Um, yeah, so it, it's a bummer when you put your confidence in something and it doesn't work out. The book of Hebrews is essentially written to give us confidence. It's written to anybody who's ever questioned or is questioning today, why should I follow Jesus? The believers that received this letter originally were struggling with their faith because they were worried that maybe they needed to go back and get some of the trappings and rituals that they used to have in Judaism. So they weren't sure if Jesus was enough. And this letter was written to us to tell us there's nothing we need more than Jesus. We can put our faith in our money, in our family. We can put our faith in our church, in our denomination, in our traditions. But none of that, none of that can save us. Only faith in Christ can save us. So the first dot, if we're going to connect the dot, the first dot we have to make is from us to the Lord, and it has to be one dot. Can't, there's no dot coming after that. It's not Jesus and something else. It's Jesus alone. The book of Hebrews, if you, if you have read it, you'll know, also shows us and teaches us that throughout the Old Testament, all the scriptures, all the writing, all the offices, all the uh, offerings that they made, all pointed to the work and person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord told us this himself uh, in John chapter 5, verse 39 to 40. Here Jesus found a man who had been paralyzed, and, or not paralyzed, he had been sick. He was in bed for 38 years. Can you imagine being bedridden for 38 years? And he came and Jesus saw him and he couldn't get up, so Jesus said, you know, pick up your bed and walk. 
And the man popped right up. He was healed. He carried his bed and he went off through town. And the religious leaders saw him walking with his bed. And they totally ignored the fact that a miracle had just happened. This guy that they knew had been in bed for 38 years was now up and walking. All they cared about is he was carrying his bed. They said, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. They didn't mean it was against some civil law. It was, it was against their laws. These guys studied the, the scriptures. And as they poured through the scriptures, what they did is instead of finding Christ in them, they just found rule after rule they could make. And they started making this myriad, this maze, these tons of lists of do's and don'ts. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this. No, 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 no. If you do all the yeses and you, do all the, and you don't do any of the no's, you're going to be holy and fine in God's eyes. That was their faith. That was their religion. And they saw this man, and again, it didn't connect any dot to Christ. They were just outraged that this guy would be breaking their law. These were man-made laws. These weren't God-given laws. So they asked him, who told you to carry your bed? And um, this healed man basically threw Jesus under the bus, said, Jesus of Nazareth told me. So they went straight away to Christ and confronted him, and they told him why they were unhappy with him. And here's what Jesus said to them in verses 39 and 40 of John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have faith. What a statement. He said to them, you are experts. You have spent your whole life pouring into the Bible, pouring into the scriptures to make up all these ways to find eternal life on your own, in your own way, according to your idea." And in, and in your study, in your expertise of the Bible, you've missed the entire point of the Scriptures. You've missed everything because they point to me, the Lord said. They point to Jesus. And Jesus said, I, you, but you won't come to me to have life, so you're dead. Do you think they appreciated that? No. So they plotted to kill him. Shows you how easy it is to miss the work of the Lord, doesn't it? They plotted to kill him, and, and a year or two after that, Jesus was crucified. Let's see what happened after that, because Jesus again confirmed how all of the scriptures teach about him. In Luke chapter 24, really famous story, you probably have heard, I know Pastor John has taught it to us many times, it's one of my favorite places to read. Um, This is on the day that Jesus rose from the grave, and two disciples, remember these are disciples of Jesus, were walking back from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus is going to walk along with them, he's going to catch up to them and walk, and... uh, it's, it's, it's sort of funny because he's going to act like he has no idea what has been going on and he's going to ask them about it. So let's read together, starting at verse 13 in Luke 24. Now that same day, that's the day we call Easter, the day that the tomb was discovered empty, two of them, two disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. These men had to stop dead in their tracks when he asked that question. Of course, they didn't recognize him as, as, as the Lord, and they were, they were devastated. They thought Jesus let him down. They were devastated. But Jesus is about to show them they have nothing Nothing to be sad about. Verse 18, one of them, a man named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? What things? Jesus asked. (laughs) That's pretty funny. 
we've seen a lot in Matthew that the Lord has a great sense of humor. He does things that are pretty funny. This is a funny one. He's walking, what things are those? You know? Another thing we can get from this, though, is, look, Jesus saw they were sad. He wanted them to tell him why they were sad. The Lord wants us to talk to him, even though he already knows. Share what's on our minds, our hearts. Verse 19, Jesus said, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. See that? Didn't connect dots. These are his disciples. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. The women didn't see Jesus, John and, and Peter didn't see Jesus when they went to the tomb, and these men didn't see Jesus right in front of him. They didn't connect the dots. But Jesus was about to show them that, oh, no, he, he didn't let them down. Their greatest hopes were about to come true beyond their imagination, beyond their wildest dreams, because that's what Jesus does. That's what he does when we trust him. Our, our greatest hopes are fulfilled beyond our wildest imagination. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oh my gosh, would you love to hear that Bible study? Can you imagine Jesus opening up the Bible, going back to Moses and all the prophets? That took him a while. And he showed how everything through Scripture pointed to himself. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he broke bread, gave thanks, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What do you suppose made them finally recognize Jesus right there? Was it maybe the familiar, unique way he broke the bread and gave the blessing? Was it they maybe for the first time now could see his hands and they could see the nail prints? Or was it that he finally opened the scriptures to them and now they could see who he was because the scriptures had been opened to him? Or was it that he just they, he told, he did a miracle again so they could see him? We don't know. Probably a little of all. But it shows us what happens when we do look into the scriptures. When the scriptures are open, there's only one, dis- one discovery to make. Christ. Verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord is risen and, and appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. They went back to Jerusalem. Now that's not as easy as it is for us. Remember, it's seven miles. They didn't just get in their Prius, do a U-turn, and go back. They had to walk, re-walk that seven-mile trek. And it was getting dark. Nighttime is not a safe time to travel. 
They didn't care. They just had to get back and share what they learned. You know what? Um, whenever the Lord reveals something to you, <laughs> as you're reading your, your Bible or you're praying, share it with someone. Don't be shy. Don't, don't do the thing that I've done a lot of times. I'm sure you probably have where you think, oh, I'm not going to share this. This is dumb. Or everybody probably knows what I'm about to say. Maybe we do, maybe we don't, but we want to hear it. It's the greatest blessing in the world when you, the Lord has shown you something and you share it with somebody else. So the book of Hebrews was written so that we can know. We can know. Not guess, not hope, but know who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God. So the next dot we need to connect is from the Bible to us. We need to connect that Bible, that dot so that we understand that the Word of God tells us who Jesus is and we can believe it. And now, now we come to the 13th chapter of Hebrews. <clears throat> and the 13th chapter is amazing. If you haven't read it, go home tonight, today and read it. 13th chapter reads like a, the greatest summary or the best highlight reel ever of the things that can turn our ordinary lives into extraordinary And in chapter 13, God has made us a huge promise. And this promise is way too good to be true if it was made by anybody other than God himself. Let's read it again, verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. <clears throat> because God has said, and here's the promise, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? You know, someone once said, confidence is really ignorance in disguise. If you're feeling confident, it's because there's something you don't know. Kind of a pessimistic view of life. The Bible has the opposite point of view. God says, no, confidence is not ignorance, it's knowledge. If you are feeling unshakable confidence, it's because there's something about God that you know. Let's read verse 5 again because the sentence structure here might be a little confusing at first glance or second or third glance even. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What does the love of money have to do with God promising he'll never leave us. How do those two things go together? God is clearly trying to tell us something, but it's not immediately clear. So why don't we skip it and read something else? Verse 5 is actually telling us something very important that God wants us to understand in black and white. We may think, that money makes the world go round. But God is saying, no. Money does not make the world go around. He does. And verse 5 tells us that we cannot expect or experience to have God's power in our life if we love money or anything more than we love Him. So we need to check that dot that we connected from ourselves to the Lord. You have to make sure it's not broken anywhere. It has to be fixed. It has to be solid. We cannot have anything between us and the Lord. <clears throat> Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. See, some people look at a place like this in the Bible and say, there you go. That's why the Bible is 
outdated. This proves it. I mean, be content with what you have. That's silly. Can't do it. It's un-American. Have you ever seen a commercial, a billboard or an ad that told you to be content with what you have? You've seen an ad that says, keep your car. It's fine. Yeah? Don't take that expensive vacation. Just quality time with your family is all that matters. Probably seen lots of ads like that. You don't need this luxury watch. You've got a clock on your phone, right? You've seen that commercial, I'm sure. Don't worry about buying this product. you probably got something at home that works pretty much like it, maybe even better. <laughs> right? You've seen that commercial? My favorite one is, your clothes look good. They have for decades. <laughs> don't worry, that fashion is coming back. Right? No, we... Have you heard the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins? Yeah. American dream now, isn't it? In our culture, less is not more. More is more. More is better. I think in our culture, the rule is we have to constantly upgrade, be upwardly mobile, and know the upside of downsizing. We want everything supersized, high definition, fast acting, hands-on, pre-washed, fully equipped, factory direct, clinically, clinically tested, and user-friendly. We don't care when our output is down as long as our income is up. That's why the American dream leads to nervous breakdowns and dramatic breakups. Right? Isn't that how we live? But God says this, <laughs> the need to find more and more is fruitless. It's pointless. Ecclesiastes verse four, chapter 4, verse 4 says, And I saw all toil, I saw all work, and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot this week, so I'll ask you, I'll put this burden <laughs> on you. It's interesting, challenging. Stop and ask yourself, why do you work so hard? Why do I work so hard? Is it provide for my family? Or is it because... I feel unsatisfied and unfulfilled if I don't have something somebody else has. God is not enough. I need something more. Back to Hebrews, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Love of money doesn't sound that bad, but there's another word for love of money that sounds a little worse. Greed. Greed is actually the opposite of contentment. Have you ever met a content greedy person? Money the Bible never calls money evil. Money is just a thing. It's not good or bad. It's just going to lay there. It doesn't matter. It's the love of money is the issue. The love of money isn't a financial issue. It's a heart issue. Honest question? Really? What's so bad about just trying to make everything I can possibly make for as long as I can make it? Okay, answer, Colossians 3, 5. says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This just keeps getting worse and worse. He started with love of money. That wasn't so bad. Now it became greed. Now we're not talking about idolatry. Wow, bummer of a message. What is idolatry? Idolatry is anything we put in God's place. Anything or everything that means more to us than God does. 
And ambition and drive can be wonderful traits, but when it makes us so consumed that all we really care about is what we have or what we can buy, then we live by those things, not by the things of God. And that can be fun for a while if we're raking it in, but when we're not raking it in or things change, then our confidence is in nothing, and it ends up we're just chasing the wind. And it cannot save us. You probably heard this famous quote from John D. Rockefeller. Remember, he used to be, one time when he was alive, the richest man in the world. And a reporter asked him, hey, uh, how much money is enough? Remember his answer? Just a little bit more. And there's another famous quote uh, with, that involves Mr. Rockefeller. When he died, somebody asked his accountant, hey, how much did Rockefeller leave behind? And the accountant said, he left it all. He didn't take anything with him. And come to think of it, have you ever seen a hearse pulling a trailer? Or being followed by a moving van? We take nothing with us, driving after the wind. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10, here's a great, great passage that says it better than I can imagine. Let's read 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. It says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs or many sorrows. Okay, God is trying to tell us something here. And it isn't just money is bad, because money is just money. Money is just a thing. He's trying to help us understand a fact of life. Love of money makes us make all kinds of wrong turns, because we start looking for security in things that cannot possibly give us security. God says he's the only way we can have real security. Godliness with contentment is great gain, Timothy said. The word for contentment is great. It means having a frame of mind that is completely independent of all outward things. Wouldn't you love to have a frame of mind that was completely independent of all outward things? Wouldn't you love to go through life content, no matter what? Is that even possible? Yeah, it's possible. You turn to Philippians 4. And while you're turning there, ask yourself this question. Have you ever gone to a bookstore or gone online because you wanted to read something so you could learn how to be more envious? Or you wanted to find something to read so you could worry better, worry more? You ever go looking for an article to help you to be discontent with what you have? Of course not. Silly. We're born with those gifts. We do that fine on our own. Where we need a little help is in the contentment category. Let's read what Paul wrote in Philippians 4. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
We have to think this through for a second. Remember Adam, Adam and Eve? He lived in the Garden of Eden, paradise. He had a beautiful wife. He had the joy of all those animals, happy animals. Nobody tried to eat anybody. Happy animals. He had every animal, and God told him he could eat whatever he wanted in the garden. Probably thousands of trees, just don't eat from the one tree. Paradise. He was not content. So he got kicked out of paradise and it was because of his sin. He was not content. And how about the Bible tells us there were angels in heaven? Heaven, that's where we all want to go. Angels were in heaven and they became discontent, some of them, and they were thrown down. So the question is, if Adam can't be content in the Garden of Eden and some angels can't be content in heaven, how on earth does Paul manage it? If you know anything about Paul, his life was hardly a paradise. He told us in his list he's, he was rejected, beaten, stoned with rocks, left for dead, in danger all the time from his countrymen and evil people. He was shipwrecked and he was imprisoned. But he learned how to be content. How did he do that? He said by trusting in the Lord, not in his circumstances. Paul learned he could be completely independent of all outward things. That's what he meant when he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul connected that dot. And my guess is, if Paul connected the dot, the dot was right on top of Paul's. I don't even think there was a line. I think they were just together. Because Paul understood who Jesus was. And he said, if Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is God, then all I need is him. And whatever he gives me, I'm happy with, I'm content with. I don't need anything else he doesn't want me to have. I'd love for you to turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 40. Um, if you're, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalms is in the middle. Of, uh, the uh, book of Isaiah is four books after Psalms. Because we said that contentment is only as good as the thing we put our confidence in. And we know that stock markets crash. Jobs end. People die. Resources run out. Cliffs that we're walking on break away. Our favorite TV shows get canceled. Confidence placed in temporary things can never be more than temporary confidence. We're just fooling ourselves. If we want everlasting confidence, we want everlasting hope, we have to find something or someone that is everlasting. No other option. Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. If you know this passage, it's wonderful. If you've never read it before, I wish I could be sitting next to you when you do. This place in Scripture is stunning. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. This second time they use the word weary means a little different. It means became exhausted because of the hardness of life. You ever feel exhausted because of the hardness of life? So even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, hope means confidence. Those who have confidence, those who have connected that dot, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Why is it so easy to believe in the power of God and at the same time think he doesn't have enough power to meet our needs? So we go looking for something something else that we think is going to be more, we can put more faith in than the everlasting God, the creator of everything, including us. We really mess ourselves up 
when we go looking for something that doesn't exist. But God declares lasting contentment and salvation is only possible in Him, never outside of Him. When we trust in other things, we experience that exhaustion that comes from the hardness of life. But when we trust in the Lord, we get wings. Annie, wouldn't it be good to have wings? We get to soar. We soar over the problem. We run and we don't get tired. We walk. We don't think. This is reality. This is God making us a promise. This is how life is meant to be. This is what life is when we trust in Christ. Verse 31 says, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Renew in the Greek is such a great word. It means put on afresh. When we trust in Christ, our faith, our hope, our confidence is brand new and alive and strong, minute by minute, second by second, every day of our life. Never grows old. Never gets thin. Never gets worn out. Never gets mold on. Always fresh. Back to Hebrews 13, verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. A more exact translation of this promise is, direct from the Greek would be, I will never by no means leave you, nor will I at all forsake you. Five negatives in a row in in the Greek, making this an ironclad promise from God. God is saying there is absolutely no way whatsoever I will ever, ever leave you for any reason. We don't have to live with uncertainty. We can if we want to, but we don't have to. God sweeps uncertainty right out the door. This is a definite promise. There is no uncertainty, no ambiguity here at all. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The question is, do we believe this? Can we connect our dots to a God that is this powerful and this personal? Here's a test you can take to see if you trust God or not. Everybody likes to take a test, don't you? test only has one question, and here it is. Ready? Test question. I've been doing this, thinking about it all week, too. So here it is. Test question. What do you think about most of the time during your day? Do you think about your security in Christ and how much you can trust Him no matter your circumstances? Or do you have more important things to worry about. Look, in the shooting gallery of life, we are sitting ducks. We're getting hit all the time with more important things to worry about. So we have to make a choice. Do we want to worry? Or do we want to promise? What was that promise again? He himself, God himself has said, I will never, ever leave you will never, ever forsake you. You see what this means? I mean, what this really means? It's spectacular. God is promising us he's never, ever going to leave us. He won't leave us when we sin. He won't leave us when we do something stupid and foolish. He won't leave us when we're in trouble. He won't leave us when we die. He won't leave us for any reason at all. Never. When God says never, he means never. This may sound like a dumb question, but do we understand who God is talking to here when he makes this promise? He's talking to you. He's talking to me. 
not talking to the church. He's talking to each of us as individuals. The all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God is saying He will take personal and perfect care of us in every situation. So you know that decision you've got that's troubling you today? That problem just will not go away? That job thing you're dealing with? Health issue that has you concerned? Family matter making you lose sleep at night? God is making his promise to you. He's saying, I've got this. I've got you. Don't be afraid. I won't leave you. I'll never leave you. You know why I think it's so easy for us to get overwhelmed by our circumstances? I, I think it's because our own thoughts run away with us much quicker than God's thoughts run away with us. Our problems can look huge. Wow, they can be big. There's the shadow of our problems just looms over us wherever we go. There's nothing we can do. But there is something we can do. When our faith falters and we feel overwhelmed, we can take a deep spiritual breath. And we can remember, walking by faith is trusting God in what he said more than what I feel. Trust it. I've been in situations where I have to claim that promise maybe 100, 200 times that day because it's so difficult. We don't walk by our feelings. Our feelings lie to us. We can trust in what God has said and he has promised he will never forsake us. The Lord is my helper. What can mere mortals do to me? We don't have to worry about all the drama in life and, oh, what if he says this? What if she does that? You know what? Even if somebody's out to get us, God promises he can work it for good. Romans 8.28 We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. I know there are times, oh my gosh, something's going on and we're so clueless, we're so powerless. We figure it out, deal with it. But that's when our confidence can really soar. Why? Because when we understand what God has promised, then we don't have to worry about what we can figure out and what we can see. Because we know he's already seen it. He's already worked it out. He's with us. He won't leave us. So the person with the answer that you're looking for is standing right here saying, I'll be with you the whole thing. Don't worry. Trust me, I have the answer. I know it hurts when you don't know the answer. I hate it when I don't know the answer. I get it, I get it, I get it. But trust the one who knows the answer. And you soar and you run and you don't get tired. The Lord is my help, helper. What does that mean? Does it mean that God helps him who helps himself? No, not at all. Not even close. It means that God is absolutely able to provide exactly what we need when we need it, when no one else can. Right now, tomorrow, and forever. The Lord is my helper. Amazing how quick we are to think that's not enough and put our security in something less than what he has said. Who's our helper? Almighty God. To close, uh, let's, if you can, find Second Chronicles, Old Testament, Second Chronicles 14. If you found Psalms before, Second uh, Chronicles is five books before Psalms. I just want us to close with this prayer from this wonderful king, uh, Asa of Judah. Judah had a lot of crummy kings. Asa was one of the Asa was one of the good kings, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So God blessed Asa, and God God blessed Judah for many many years. But then the Ethiopians showed up with this major monster army. 
and Judah was outnumbered. And it looked really bad. So Asa prayed, and here's his prayer in 14, 2 Chronicles 14, 11. Then Asa called to the Lord his God. Don't you love that, his God? Asa connected the dots. This is personal. His personal God. We have the same opportunity. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. Doesn't that sound like Hebrews 13.6? The Lord is our helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What a great prayer from King Asa. He said basically, God, it doesn't matter to you whether we have a big army or no army at all. You are able. We don't need to fear what others do to us. The trust is entirely in you. And God answered Asa's prayer. That small little Judah army annihilated the Ethiopians. God always keeps his promises. God tells us not to worry about our bank balance or anything else because we can be content with what we have. What is it we have? We have the Lord. In probably the most famous psalm ever written, Psalm 23rd Psalm, first verse of Psalm 23 is, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my helper. I lack nothing. <laughs> God's saying be content with what you have because I've given you myself. When we have the Lord, we have everything. We lack nothing. God's saying, can you be content with that? You have everything. The question is, do we believe in it? Can we really trust him? Can we connect that dot? Like have the prayer team come up. We're going to close in prayer now, and after we close in prayer, the prayer team will be up here, and if you'd like prayer for any reason at all, please come up. They'd love to pray with you for anything. I'm going to read this passage back to the Lord now, and I pray that it is your heartfelt prayer and my heartfelt prayer that we are men and women that trust like this. Would you please bow your heads, and I'll just read this for us. Dear Lord, Please keep our lives free from the love of money and from the love of anything that takes our eyes off of you. Please, let us be content with what you have given us as we rejoice in your promise that you will never, ever leave us, never, ever forsake us. In you, Father, we have everything. Please, Lord, let us have bold confidence in you when things are going great and when they're not. So we can say without reservation, the Lord is my helper, my provider. I will not be afraid of anything or anyone. Amen.